We're going to jump into our sermon now. So we're in a sermon series walking through the Old Testament book of Nahum. Nahum is a minor prophet who was sent to Judah. Okay, now I mentioned last week, Judah is um, the southern part of what was Israel. So in 931 BC, um, Israel split. And on the northern part was Israel. In the southern part was Judah. And so I think I've got a, a map up here. I'm trying to get a map up here that you guys can look at just to see as a graphic. So, um, but, so Judah sent to the southern portion of Israel, we could say, at this time. So, but he sent with the specific news that is being recorded in this book. Now, Judah was constantly under threat and had felt the heat of Assyria's brutality. Okay, so Assyria, known as a very cruel regime, regime they loved to deal violently um, with their enemies, and, and Judah had experienced this in very specific ways. So, given this context, given this understanding of how Israel had, or how Assyria had treated God's people, it's no surprise that we find what we're going to read in these next few verses. So we're going to be in Nahum 1 this morning, and we're going to read verses 2 through 6. All right. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. So what's really clear here is that God is not pleased. God is not happy with what is going on here. So let's think for a moment about what is being communed as God is described as jealous avenging, and wrathful, all right? Now, when we think about jealous, this isn't how we often think about God, or maybe how we even like to think about God. Loving and gracious how, is how we want to think about God. Jealous sounds so petty, so unstable, but it's one way that the Bible consistently depicts God. And so I think for many of us, we might ask the question, why is that? Why is God described that way? And the reason is because there's nothing greater than him. There's nothing greater than God himself. It's real clear for us that this is a central part of God's character. But for us, it's not a good thing for us to be jealous. Now, we become jealous of many things. We become jealous of the success of others of the possessions that others have, of the toys that other children have. We want to play with those toys. 
We even become jealous of God. But we are to be jealous for God. We are to be jealous for God. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, Paul says there, For I feel a divine jealousy for you. I feel a divine jealousy for you. Paul has a godlike jealousy for the people of Corinth. He's not jealous of them. He's jealous for them. And in a greater way, we possess nothing in ourselves that makes God jealous of us. God is jealous because there is nothing greater than him. And this is demonstrated in numerous ways throughout the Bible as he defeats armies, as he heals the sick, as he makes the blind see, as he turns water into wine, as he stills the sea, and most importantly, as he saves people who are dead in sin, and he raises them from death to life. So it's only right that we would be in awe of him. So to not see God for who he is, to not see God as powerful, is to see him wrongly. It is to believe lies. So I want to read Isaiah 42, 8 for us now. God says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. There is no one else, nowhere else that God can give his glory, that he can pass his glory off to. And for them to Behold it rightly. All glory is intended to go to God because there's no one like him. There's no one powerful like him. And so it is right for God to be jealous. In fact, it is good for God to be jealous. Verse 2 is a verse that might make us cringe. I think many people, when they read verse 2, like if they were talking with a non-Christian, this is not the verse that many of us would go to. These are the aspects of the Bible that maybe we read quickly over, or we just don't read at all. We envision this deity being described here as belligerent, or maybe angry. And there's no doubt, God is portraying himself as avenging and wrathful, but we have to remember the context. We have to remember the context in which God is being described in this way. God is communicating a message about Nineveh, okay? A nation renowned for their vengeance and for their wrath. And so he is speaking a meaningful word to his people. It's contextual. I don't know if any of you follow the news of the nation of Syria, But the nation of Syria has been engaged in a brutal civil war for over nine years. Millions of people in that country have been displaced. Hundreds of thousands have been killed. The infrastructure has been decimated. Much of this surrounds keeping a specific person in power in that nation. Now, Chemical warfare has been part of what's gone on in that nation. When someone has been attacked with chemical weapons, 
they desire a strong response. They long for a strong response against those who have hurt them and their loved ones. If, if we lived in that nation and our, our family had been unjustly murdered, and this, this has been true for many Syrians, this has been true, this was true for many people who lived in Judah in the time that Nahum was prophesying. If that was our reality, we want a strong God who responds definitively. We don't want a God to just sit back and not do nothing at all. And that is what we find God doing here. He is stepping up to the plate to defend those that he loves. So this is not intended to be scary, at least for God's people. This is intended to be comforting. So what does this all mean for us then? God reveals himself as jealous, meaning nothing comes before him. Nothing comes before God. He demands absolute loyalty from us. And this is not narcissistic for God to do this because he alone is worthy of worship. He knows that if we are jealous for other things, that we are chasing after things that will ultimately disappoint us, those things will let us down. So his jealousy, the fact that he refers to himself as a jealous God, that he communicates through prophets that he is a jealous God, is actually a loving thing. It's love towards us. For us to reject this idea, this picture of God is sinful. Nineveh rejected God, okay? They, they looked out at nations around them, Assyria and Nineveh, and they said, we are God. We are like a divine being, and we are going to act this way. And the way that they acted in trying to exert their power over others is it led to the ruthless killing of many people. There was rampant evil. It was a horrific reality. And God is saying here, no, I will exact revenge. And when he says exact revenge, what he means is, I will bring about justice. I will bring about justice for my people. As it says in verse 3, the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. So let's just sit and wrestle with this a little bit more. It's so important for us to understand this. I don't know if you guys know the story of Oprah, but in her late 20s, she heard a sermon about the idea that God is a jealous God. And she said, I can't handle that. I'm tapping out and, and turned her back on any idea of the Christian faith at that time. I, I haven't followed her story since. I just know that that's part of her story. But this is really important for us to understand what God is revealing about himself as he talks about this. Now, my intent in this is not to coerce anybody through fear. Not at all. God is revealing himself to us, and we should want to understand him, how he wants us to understand him, and then how we are to respond to him in this way. So my hope is we can understand God and helpfully feel the weight. So remember the subtitle of our series. There's good news in unexpected places. God's desire is for our good. He wants 
our good. His glory results in our good. And so even when we read verses like this, we need to believe this reality. God desires your good. Verses 3 through 6 then provide some alarming visuals to help us wrestle with this. We read in verse 3, his way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Whirlwind and storm suggest terror and calamity, which result in distress and anguish. So whether it's a result of a charging army or of God himself, this description of God speaks to the inescapable nature of his judgment. When God is going to pour out judgment, those he is judging will not be able to escape it. He can create a wind or a storm out of nothing. He doesn't need, in those days, uh, an army would need to move over the course of months. He doesn't need time to, to move an army. He's always ready and able to attack. And that clouds are the dust of his feet. Speak to how God will walk upon Assyria. That is what he is going to do. He is going to walk upon Assyria. We get a picture of this at the end of the Bible, too. Speaking of Jesus' second coming, Revelation 1-7 says, Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Jesus will walk upon his enemies. Judah, in that day, was terrified of the brutal nature of Assyria, but Assyria was no match for God himself. God will throw Assyria into chaos. So this is intended to be a word of comfort for God's people. Very clearly also a word of threat for those who are defying God. We then get a visual of water drying up and the effects of that. As someone who drinks probably 100 or more ounces of water per day, this idea of water being dried up is terrifying to me. It makes, it makes my mouth clammy like when I read this. Water is essential to life. Even if you don't drink a lot of water in a given day, water is essential to life. We bathe in it, we play in it. It's essential for food to grow, uh, the food that we eat. So it's vital for us. Nahum mentions the far-reaching effects by mentioning Bashan, Carmel, and Lebanon. These were places that were lush with agriculture and natural beauty. And Nahum is saying, because water is going to dry up, the flowers and the food will wither. Barrenness is emphasized. Assyria will be left wanting. Very bad news for Assyria. So what is being promised has very different implications for Assyria and for Judah. For one, this results in destruction. For another, this leads to their salvation. As we read the Bible, we need to be aware of phrases, of symbols, of pictures that are repeated throughout. What, what patterns do we find? The idea that God rebukes the sea has varied meaning. Assyria, when they read this or hear about this or experience this, Assyria is going to tremble. Judah, on the other hand, will be relieved. They will celebrate this. 
But this physical reality of what's being described in the book of Nahum, Nahum points to a greater reality. The physical deliverance for Judah is going to be temporary. Okay, so, so they can say, oh, this is great. But still, there, there's still going to be other enemies that they're going to face, right? All of this is whispering a much greater deliverance, a much greater salvation, one that we ultimately see in and through Jesus himself. So thinking about verse 4 here, the idea of rebuking the sea, making it dry, and so forth. Let's flip forward to Mark chapter 4 in the New Testament, okay? We read there. A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. In Nahum's day, Judah finds themselves deeply afflicted by evil. Fast forward to the New Testament in Mark 4. Jesus' disciples, in this moment, as they're crossing water in a boat, they are deeply afflicted by evil realities in this world. This is true for all of humanity. All of us can point to situations in our lives where we have been deeply afflicted by evil. Sometimes people escape. Other times, not. But the point of the emphasis in all of this that we're reading in Mark 4 is evidenced by Jesus' question to his disciples right after what we read here. Jesus asked them, Have you still no faith? Jesus deals with the physical realities, okay? But he isn't merely concerned with physical safety. We are physical people, and so our physical realm is the reality we can't escape on this earth. We're going to be concerned with it. But Jesus wants to move us beyond just our physical reality. He's pointing to something more. He's pointing to spiritual safety, salvation through faith. We will not find salvation. We will not find safety merely in physical circumstances. We have to look beyond that. So as with everything in life, the key here is that we are trusting in Jesus. That's the call for us. We, we see this whole dynamic play out in the Exodus as well. When God commands the waters, okay, the waters turn into two big walls and his people cross through. When God commands the waters, this is really good news for his people. And it results in the deliverance of those who are trusting in him. But what happens to those not trusting? in him? What happens to those trusting in themselves, trusting in horses and chariots and their might? They are destroyed. When we trust in ourselves, it leads to our destruction. God is jealous, as he should be, because he alone can save us. 
The judgment of Nineveh is then described with quaking mountains, melting hills, and a heaving earth. What's being described here is maybe a bit difficult for us to imagine. Because these are symbols of permanence, right? Like These things don't move. They're immovable. They're unshakable. But what's being described here is like a massive hill becoming like a stick of butter in a hot pan, right? That, that's what's being described. It's melting before their eyes. Maybe we can understand this a little bit, a little bit better if we think about a time in our lives when we've received bad news. News that made your knees shake. News that made your lips quiver. News that led to your heart sinking. Many of us have felt our worlds turned upside down by something, by someone. And if we haven't, we just haven't lived long enough yet. Tomorrow, our family is celebrating three years of God restoring our son to life. This was one of those moments in my life where I felt my world crumbling in front of my eyes. This is what's coming for Nineveh. This is what Nahum is promising is going to happen to Assyria. This is what's going to lead to Judah's deliverance. But that deliverance is temporary. It must point to a greater deliverance, and that ultimately is Jesus. The ultimate scene of this is found as Jesus dies on the cross. As he dies on the cross, darkness enshrouds the land. An earthquake shakes the earth. Tombs are broken open as people come back to life. As Jesus' followers watch what's unfolding in front of them, the life is sucked out of them. But even, even in this seemingly God-forsaken moment, the work of God is recognized. People are in awe. Soldiers who are watching what's going on exclaim, truly, this was the Son of God. When they see how he died, when they see everything surrounding those, that, that situation, Jesus' death, they say that had to be the Son of God. When God applies justice to a nation that views itself as dominant, as immovable, as divine, they will tremble in fear. Assyria will find themselves retreating to the fetal position when God flexes. They will know God in a way they have never known him. And they will be terrified. They will understand the answer to the questions in verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? No one. No one. 
when his wrath is poured out like fire, it will consume those in its way. God is unlike any other. He will avenge those who are his enemies. He will avenge those who have sinned against him. Now, this is all really frightening. If you are against God, no one reads these verses and says, I want that. Bring it on. Some people say that because God is envisioned in this way, that, that he's just this petulant, unjust, crazy deity. That is not what's going on here. That is not what God is depicted as, as he says he's a jealous God. What we find here in these verses is a God who loves deeply his people and is saying, I will go to war. I will fight for my people. I will lay my life down for my people. I will run into the darkness, into the middle of the fight, to that point where no one else wants to go, where everyone else is running from. I'll run to that spot because I love my people. God is not just on some mission to annihilate as many people as possible. In the midst of these verses, speaking to the knee-shaking terror God can incite, we get this other description of God that rises, arises consistently throughout the Bible as well. I don't know if you guys saw this as we read through the verses the first time. It says that he is slow to anger. Let me just read that slowly. The Lord is slow to anger. I find in myself, and I have heard this plenty of times, pastoring people, there is this tendency to call out God for at times being too angry. Don't be like that, God. I don't want people to see that depiction of God. So at times too angry and at other times too slow to anger. The situation that was in play in Nineveh, in Assyria, was very complex. The situation we find ourselves in today is very complex. God isn't just fed up with people, so he starts shooting laser beams at people indiscriminately. He's not indiscriminately lobbing bombs at people down here on earth. When we think this way, we are revealing our ignorance of who God is. This is not how God has revealed himself in the Bible. The God revealed in the Bible feels anguish. He loves his creation. He's a God of justice. He weeps over rebellion. He is not some bloodthirsty monster. Our anger at God for not acting in the way that we want him to act reveals that we want to fashion God in our own image. We think that we know better than he does. But we don't. Do you have any idea how many times you have spit in God's face? 
how many times you have walked the other way. How many times you have blew him off. You have flipped him the bird. You have condescendingly dismissed him. Him. You have smirked at his ways. You have done your own thing. You have turned your back on him. It is amazing, amazing that we are upright, that we are breathing right now. It shows how he is slow to anger, it demonstrates his kindness towards those he loves. We cannot presume on God's patience and then begrudge his patience to other people. So, so every time we are impatient with other people, we are lying about who God is. Every time we are impatient with others, when we get angry at someone when we're driving down the road, when we lash out at our children, when we say something about someone on the other side of the political spectrum or something about our neighbor, we are overlooking what God has done for us. He has stayed his vengeance, his wrath. He has been slow to anger towards us. Three points of gospel application for us as we close this morning. First of all, just a quick why. Why do we do gospel application? So typically you get to the end of the sermon and you hear application, okay? We do gospel application because we don't want you walking out of here with a list of to-dos, okay? The Christian faith is not about what you do. The Christian faith is about what Jesus has done for you and you believing in that. So what that means for us this morning is Jesus took on God's wrath, okay? Jesus took on God's wrath that was meant for you. He took it on himself on the cross. So when you, you walk out of here this morning, you don't have to worry about God's wrath being poured out on you if you are believing the gospel. You don't have to live in fear. You don't have to walk out of here and try to earn something from God so he doesn't pour out his wrath on you. That's not how the gospel works. You look at the cross and you see what Jesus has done for you and you rejoice in that. You rest in that reality. This is good news, the best news in the world. Jesus took God's wrath on himself so you don't have to. Now live freely. Live with joy. Not fearful that God is going to smote you. Okay, so first... God is slow to anger. I'm just reiterating what I've just said. But we've got to understand, this is who God is. God is slow to anger. To you and to your enemy. Note our hypocrisy to want this personally, but to despise God's slowness to anger when it doesn't fit our timeline, okay? As much as you want it for yourself, you've got to want it for the person next to you. You've got to want it for your enemy as well. Otherwise, we're not really understanding what God has done for us. We're not really understanding how horrible his wrath really is. God's slowness to anger is really 
good news. I, I would encourage you guys just to sit in this reality. Think about this week. How has God been slow to anger with you? There'll probably be a, a bevy of things that you can think of. Man, I deserve to die here. I did this thing. I've got this constant sin. Just reflect on how God has been slow to anger to you. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He is patient towards you, and notice this, not wishing that any should perish. Okay? Whomever it might be, whomever you want to perish, God doesn't want them to perish. He wants them to turn to him. He is slow to anger. When we understand this about God, the intention is that it would motivate us. When we understand God is slow to anger, it would motivate us to live lives full of trusting in him. God is unbelievably kind. So God is slow to anger. Understanding God's hatred of evil makes his slowness to anger amazing. Okay? Understanding God's hatred of evil makes his slowness to anger amazing. But even though God is slow to anger, he will destroy evil. God will destroy evil. He will. As he did in Nineveh. He hates evil. His anger burns white hot towards murder, towards slanderous words and thoughts against sex trafficking and laziness and lust and cancer and wars and theft and death itself and accidents and complaining and sickness and natural disasters and greed and the list goes on and on. God will destroy evil and set it all right. He will do this. No, God will set it right. He's not asking you or me to set it right. Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. God cares about whatever we're walking through. He cares about how we're afflicted by evil in this world. And he will deal with it. We might wish he would deal with it in a different way. We might wish that he would deal with it at a different time. But he has promised to deal with it. And he has shown his investment in all of this by sending his son and having him die for our sins. All right, lastly. Who do you know that is standing in the path of God's wrath? Who do you know? Think about yourself. Maybe you've got persistent sin. You keep running back to sin in your own life. Nineveh was foretold. This is what was going to happen to them. And it happened. We can look back in history. We can see this actually occurred. How we live our lives today reveals what we believe about God. Do you believe 
this is who God is? Do you believe that he is going to avenge sin? Do you believe that God's going to pour out his wrath against sin? Do you believe that? It is unloving to those around us to pretend that this is not true. Who do you know that is standing in the path of God's wrath?